It's JL May. We're covering the Silver Age. This JL May, a comic event from Mark Wade. We're crossovering a podcast. There's 12 of us involved. Get it in your ear holes, this JL May. We'll tell you all. Silver Age It's not great But it's okay We really have to warn you It has a controversial one Where Mark Miller wrote the lead But it also has some good stuff style age metal of the unknown Green Lantern Flash Patrol of Doom The Seven Soldiers of Victory are in there too The annual JLMA event is upon us once more In 2018 we're reading The Silver Age from 2001 The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky Coffee and Comics Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirls and Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Do you know it's all? We check the date. It came out in 2000. We got it right. And we're ready for some fun. begins this May. on his debut comic cover is new, the most original comic character in history. We meet a young, bespectacled man, maybe a freshman in high school. He was orphaned at an early age and raised by an elderly relative. He's a gifted science student often chided for his brains by his classmates. One day on a field trip, he's given extraordinary powers and an accident uses them to battle crime, despite displaying grotesque insectoid abilities at times. He's hero-worshipped by the very same students that chided the schoolboy. Obviously, I'm talking about Peter Parker... Wait a minute. Spider-Man debuted four years before 1966. Let me try this again. It's the story of an orphan boy who journeys into a cave where a wizard bestows upon him access to a magic word that transforms him into an adult male superhero with a ready-made costume and an enormous wealth of abilities. But even had fortune not so smiled on him. This intrepid lad clad in a red shirt and blue pants is eager and capable in initiating his own adventures. Still, with one magic word, 
Billy Batso, not him either. Captain Marvel was over a quarter century earlier and also had another publisher besides DC. Look, maybe I should let him tell it. Excerpt from January 1984 is The New Adventures of Superboy number 49. My career began a few years ago when a crime machine built by an organization called Thunderbolt knocked me right off a cliff I was standing on. I thought I'd bought the farm, but instead found myself inside an unexplored cavern. Somebody had been there before me. Sock McGee! Some kind of dial. I took it home and must have somehow tuned in on it. Even a boy genius like myself couldn't have deciphered its alien code so quickly. I knew, somehow, that I had to decipher the alien equivalent of H-E-R-O to make the thing work. So I did. I became Giant Boy and began my career fighting Thunderbolt. Over the next months, I became all sorts of heroes, using my powers to fight Thunderbolt and any other criminals I came across. But H-E-R-O wasn't the only thing that could be dialed. Someone once dialed V-I-L-L-A-I-N and turned into a supervillain who almost destroyed me. Robbie Reed's narration overemphasizes the importance of Thunderbolt during his series of adventures in the comic book series House of Mystery, beginning in the January 1966 cover dated issue 156. Reed found a small circular device with a rotary element on its face and used it against the criminal organization in his first two stories before capturing their leader in number 157. Almost immediately afterward, Jean Jones assumed the new identity of Marco Xavier to attempt to topple the international criminal organization Vulture for the rest of his time in the same title. We'll likely never know who decided that it would be better for the Manhunter from Mars to go that route instead of Robbie Reed. But the kid has a prototypical adventure, and I'll tell you that rather than synopsize the 18-issue run. Robbie Reed is doing something mundane in the minor city of Littleville, described as a small rural community, but with a faceless sprawl of generic buildings to rob and wreck as needed. Friendly faces everywhere, humble folks without temptation. Usually Robbie is hanging out with his anonymous friends or his gramps and their housekeeper Miss Millie. A superhuman threat is announced on the radio or television or merely observed from a distance. Robbie disappears to a secluded place like his laboratory shack in the backyard to activate his H-dial, wondering aloud what kind of hero he would become this time. Robbie spends another panel or so drinking in his transformation to a usually lame superhero of the lower tier Mighty Comics or Harvey sort. Alternately, he'll become a weird alien or creature that was typically better designed than one of the boogeymen from Out of the Idlehead, but not quite as memorable as an early JLA villain or a substitute legionnaire. The first hero would usually have some variation on the power of flight to help Robbie get to the bad guys, and it was probably on average in a given story more like 50-100% to 100% of the H-Dial creations that delivered on some form of enhanced locomotion to facilitate ease of travel. The first hero would get the most screen time and be fairly competent, but some complication like having to save innocents caught in the battle would prevent his capturing the bad guys. Most of the heroes had decent powers but were not as impressive in scale as a similarly powered character in other comics, allowing the hero to be felled by various conventional means without an arbitrary weakness. Robbie would perform some plainclothes investigation, or just go back to doing mundane stuff until the bad guy struck again. The villains were usually human criminals who had acquired powers or been turned into some sort of monster. In the second act, they would stymie or actually defeat the hero. Often, this would be due to some important incompatibility or shortcoming in the latter hero's abilities in comparison with the villains. This fallacy might require the hero to make a third transformation or maybe the last form was the weakest, to add drama to the resolution. Sometimes the same hero would rally with an important clue that would assure victory in the third act, but most often a third H-Dial transformation would occur. In the final panels, a supporting cast member would usually say something about the solved case, and Robbie would note to himself some parallel or twist that only he was aware of, 
and had to keep secret. Finally, if you play a drinking game where you take a shot at every time Robbie says Saka McGee in a given 16-page story, you will at the very least be rendered unable to drive and run the risk of losing consciousness. If you're trying to tackle the entire Showcase Presents volume in one sitting, you're taking your very life into your hands. At least in the first half of the run that I'm looking at for this podcast, aside from one story where Gramps Reed was turned into a monster and Robbie sobbed over the personal nature of the conflict, there weren't any great expressions of emotion in the stories. If Robbie's friends had names, I couldn't tell them to you. Miss Millie appears to live in the same house, or at least have dinner with the Reeds. That's all I can say about her relationship to them. The House of Mystery stories were originally self-contained, with barely a hint of any sort of serialization. Having read, or at least furtively scanned through House of Mystery number 156 through 164 for this episode, I can offer a few highlight entries. The origin story from number 156 is an obvious starting point, but it's not necessary and has some of the least imaginative H-Dial heroes. Dial V from Villain from number 158 shakes with the formula some, and has a swell-looking foe. Number 159 has some especially fun transformations. Number 160 features the first appearance of Plastic Man in a DC comic, and his first new story in nearly a decade. Plus, the first returning H-Dial hero is Giant Boy. Also notably, it features Robbie's first date with a ginger named Susie, but we'll pick up on that thread later on. Number 161 has one of the best stories in my opinion, with well-designed heroes and a particularly striking Egyptian mummy-themed villain. It's also amusing because whoever previously owned my copy of the issue decided to color in the white mask on Robbie's heroic identity of Magneto with a well-chosen marker to match his purple costume. I can't argue with that choice, since who wouldn't want Magneto to wear an all-purple costume? But I could have done without the marker bleeding through the pages. Number 162 has a bunch of spiffy ads for the Batman movie and other multimedia endeavors at national periodical publications, plus an above-average story which seemed to owe a small debt to both Captain Comet and the Doom Shadow. Number 163 is the first time I noticed the distinction that gets reinforced in number 164. Robbie Reed appears to live in Littleville, but the H-Dial adventures appear to take place in the nearby Zenith City, which makes a lot more sense. To my knowledge, all the scripts were by occasional Manhunter from Mars scripter Dave Wood and drawn by Jim Mooney, perhaps best known for his Silver Age Supergirl work. The scripts were pleasant to look at and of a reliable consistency. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the league through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. 
I really went whole hog into the first JL May podcast crossover in 2016. The Maxi Series JLA Year One came out at a time when my comic reading would revolve around the Justice League and was a highlight of that period, since it dealt with the founding five members of the Justice League. And being counted among the number as the defining accomplishment of Martian Manor's comic book career, the event was right in my wheelhouse. Besides the official Year One tie-in episode, I also produced individual spin-off episodes for the original 1962 origin story, a Martian-centric retcon from 1977, and a new quasi-formation story from the Zero Hour event from 1994. I'd assume JL May would be a one-off podcast get-together, but the following year it returned to cover the 2006 Alex Ross maxi-series Justice. I am far more ambivalent about Grim Dark Challenge of the Super Friends, but it's pretty look at and had its moments. I did an Idle Hit of Diablo episode and an unsanctioned Diana Prince Wonder Woman episode that looked at the story from extremes of positivity and negativity to reflect my polarized reaction to the story. It also helped that in my blogging days of grinding through material to get a daily post-up about John Jones, I'd already essentially scripted my own interblog crossover that I could easily repurpose. I also promised to revive my Power of the Atom podcast for additional coverage, but I felt that would be covering too much of the same ground as other podcasters, and I shelved it. Which brings us to the present JL May crossover, covering the nearly 20-year-old event The Silver Age, which is self-reflected on characters and aesthetics from another 40 years back. Talent associated with the JLA Year One Maxi series are also present, and the core creative team actually handles my leg of this year's shindig. It's too bad that of all the ages of superhero comics, I like the Silver Age the least of all, and I'm especially disinterested in DC's output from that period. There's no point in DC's publishing history that I could be less enthused about, which is why when this revival was released, I skimmed the issues at my comic shop and only kept a few because of my crippling addiction to post-crisis continuity. I've generally stayed sober since a bit before Infinite Crisis. In the year 2000, though, I was a canon lush, but I still turned my nose up at the Silver Age, so allow me to set my participation level at begrudging as we look at Martian Manor's role in the first five offerings of this modest event beginning after the next promo. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Lori the Morris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. Agamemno was a yellow-skinned, symmetrically dysmorphic humanoid alien would-be conqueror created by Mark Wade to serve as the inciting antagonist for a retcon adventure set in the early days of the Justice League. You'd think he'd have learned his lesson with triumph, but somehow Agamemno had even less staying power. Supposedly, Agamemno's father was the first sentient being to spring from the Big Bang, and as this telling goes, was killed by other lesser jealous beings. At least that's the story Agamemno told Lex Luthor, as he appeared before the corrupt businessman upon arriving on Earth. Agamemno lacked a physical form, and so would animate whatever matter was handy to create a simulacrum of himself for corporeal affairs of this type. Agamemno sought beings powerful enough to help him exact revenge for his father's death. 
and the Terran Justice League of America appeared to be the perfect candidates. However, they didn't appear to be morally aligned for such a matter. Agamemno offered to switch their essences out with terrestrial criminals, so long as they were willing to serve his ends. Small groupings of villains associated with the League, or as individual members, ganged up on our heroes to facilitate the body swaps. Black Manta and Dr. Light staged an attack on Atlantis, drawing the attention of Aquaman and the Martian Manhunter. Thanks for responding to my JLA signal, John. Under circumstances, two-on-two seems fair. My pleasure, Arthur. This shouldn't take long. Unbeknownst to them, Agamemno's waiting in the wings with a fourth fiend, Mr. Element. According to Agamemno, fire is the Martian's weakness. He no doubt believes he's safe from flame on the ocean's floor. But with my weapon, I can turn that nearby coral into pure sodium, which burns underwater. The crook next extracted the oxygen from the water around the Sea King, suffocating him unconscious. Black Man observed, Make no light. From this point on, you might want to lay off the matches. Similarly, Superman, Batman, Black Canary, Flash, Green Lantern, Atom, and Green Arrow body-swapped with their corresponding adversaries, Luthor, the Penguin, Catwoman, Mr. Element, Zinestro, Kronos, and Felix Faust. The displaced leaguers were secured at their secret sanctuary with the help of a duped snapper car. However, Felix Faust was able to create a bow with a spent umbrella, and the Penguin then guided Catwoman in firing a trick arrow he'd secured before the body swap, as Faust's eyesight was comparatively poor. The resulting explosion helped the team gain access to Sinestro's power ring, and then freedom. Batman slash Penguin decided the team's best course of action was to swiftly ruin the reputation of the Justice League to put Earth on guard against its former protectors. Jean Jones bemoaned that rolling back of his and Superman's efforts at acceptance by the planet, but deferred to the Dark Knight. Meanwhile, Snapper Carr called in the reserves to help him recover the missing villains, including the Teen Titans, the Challengers of the Unknown, Metamorpho, Elongated Man, the Doom Patrol, and the Blackhawk Squadron. Pawns of the Invincible Immortal was by Mark Wade, Terry, and Rachel Dodson. Despite the Brian Ball and Art, I found this issue off-putting from the very beginning because of the DC goofiness of a cover featuring the Penguin in a Batman costume and Lex Luthor in a Superman one right from the start. Sinestro in a Green Lantern costume isn't interesting at all, just anachronistic. Too bad they didn't stuff Gorilla Grodd in a Flash costume instead. That might have gotten my blood pumping. No offense to the Dodsons, but I'm not a huge fan of Adam Hughes' cheesecake art, so a more soft lens take on the same doesn't get me going either. It certainly wasn't helped that DC at this time was experimenting with cheaper paper stocks, which caused a lot of books in this period to do a reverse flexographics and make a flat, drab mess of the art. I'm not wild about the villain selections or the half measure of doing a Silver age story that kind of reflects the post-crisis narrative except when it doesn't. Again, I dislike the actual Silver Age. It was a strong proponent of the changes wrought by Christ on Infinite Earths so I didn't appreciate the canon being as muddy as the printing. It's also personally very annoying that Black Canary, Green Arrow, and especially Martian Manhunter aren't allowed to offer their own villains a spotlight when Mr. Fastest Man Alive Rider has the Flash be countered by Mr. Element of all his rogues in an event already of commercially dubious nature. Dr. Light was first treated as John Jones' counterpart in 1968's Justice League of America number 61, but only in a half-hearted, they're both basic model JLA material sort of way, so it's never resonated. Arthur Light's being rendered radioactive by the Identity Crisis miniseries, which was written by the guy who decisively removed John Jones from the Justice League, only makes their occasional non-association all the more galling for me. Put Professional Arnold Hugo or Brett or Despero in this thing and I might have been singing its praises, but the presence of Dr. Light is too distasteful for me to pay it much mind. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have, about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Identity Crisis. Lone Wolf and Cub. Hergé's Tintin. 
the white tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. I didn't know this was going to be the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. It's always the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. Ultraman, this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo. And this Ultra- of how they spoke at length. When I read a comic, story comes first and art comes second. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. Those are our people, Emily. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Superman has basically the same relationship with Wonder Woman that he has with Batman. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Agamemnon's body-swapping villainous JLA get up to some especially nasty business. This includes vomiting on one another, causing schools of sea life to devour each other as a laugh, massacring an entire miniaturized Daxamite city underfoot, stealing the Owen's central power battery, and rendering dozens of Green Lantern corpsmen corpses, man. At one point, Dr. Light as Martian Manhunter is sexually propositioned by Catwoman as Black Canary after he flew her back to her apartment to feed her cats. You're wasting your time, my amorous companion. Physics ace Arthur Light has always been more interested in test tubes and Bunsen burners than the fairer sex. Clearly, Brad Meltzer never read the story. Or maybe consent is just a turnoff for Dr. Light. Technically, Catwoman is suggesting the sexual assault of both their borrowed bodies. So maybe she just phrased her request ineffectively. Martian slash Light's other major contribution to the issue was using his ability to turn himself yellow to choke the decorated Green Lantern, Ares Bandit of Zarda, to death, while partially assuming an anachronistic natural Martian form. Also, Martian vision is apparently capable of destroying a whole mound of Green Lantern rings, stolen at super speed by Flash slash Mr. Element. Given the viciousness reflected in this synopsis, you probably shouldn't be surprised that The League Without Justice is credited to Mark Miller, Scott Collins, and Dan Pinosian. Ty Templeton's cover was another instance where I thought the image on its own was cute, but it's such a strong reflection of DC's Silver Age house style that I always struggle to start reading the story underneath. Again, I'm not confident I ever actually read-read these books when they came out, with the exception of Dial H for Hero. I barely recalled anything about them going in, and had no recollection of anything controversial as referenced in the JL May 2018 promotional song. Then I finally committed to this, and it all became clear. In listening to the Coffee and Comics podcast coverage of this issue, I heard the report repeatedly assert that something happened to Mark Miller to cause him to become bitterly pessimistic and embrace shock tactics on his books. My feeling has always been that Grant Morrison ultimately believes in the heroic ideal and its benevolent impact on society, and he brought up Miller as his protege expecting the same mindset. Having begun to establish himself in the industry solo after years being Morrison's writing partner on his lower profile projects, Miller found a way to step outside Morrison's shadow, and I expect it was by embracing a nihilistic refutation of the heroic ideal that was always there after being pressed into the hippy-dippy root by Morrison for years. 
Miller was three issues into his run replacing noted cynic Warren Ellis on one of his biggest commercial successes, The Authority. No one expected the book to retain its heat with the departure of its launching creative team at the peak of their powers. But if anything, Miller and Frank quietly only magnified its presence by making the book even more aggressive and critical of superhero tropes. To have exploded out of the gate with such a transgressive take on genre indicates Miller always had Pat Mills and Rick Veach hardwired into his mainframe. There was a layer of cruelty and victimization that was always present in Silver Age DC Comics, especially those edited by Mort Weisinger. And in this special, Miller took that quality to the nth degree. The art certainly does reflect the period represented, just not DC's frigid offerings. Collins isn't after Wayne Boring, but instead channels Wally Wood's brutal parody Super Duper Man from Mad Magazine. The creative team in this book are not here to praise the Silver Age, but to take the piss out of it. I suspect that, like me, Miller has a knee-jerk reaction to the staid homogeneity and compulsive acquiescence to authority seen in books from this period. Regardless of his stated politics, the deep nostalgia guys like Mark Wade Express for a mid-century America, dominated by a conformity to white male Christian social mores, has more in common with Donald Trump's mentality than a wily countercultural Scots. I think Miller is angry at this venture, and he's got a wild hair after years of suppressing his storytelling inclinations to better match his mentors. I'm not particularly fond of Mark Miller's catalog, and I do think he tends to pander to the worst impulses in himself and his audience. However, his work in this period has a vitality and fury that I can appreciate. This book is mean-spirited and has no legitimate moral place in continuity, but this event was trivial and largely forgotten today, so what does it really matter? In an event dominated by Lawrence Welk and Pat Boone, I can't help but be refreshed by at least one Black Sabbath cut. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman invisible plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed, no change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Finally, we arrive at Silver Age, Dial H for Hero Number 1, cover dated July 2000. Littleville, Colorado is established as the home of Robbie and Gramps Reed, along with her housekeeper, Miss Millie. The small city had been plagued by the superhuman hoodlums, the Thunderbolt Gang, but Robbie and his magical H-Dial hoped to stop them once and for all in his latest heroic form, the darkness-generating Twilight, who strongly resembled the Marvel hero's cloak and the shroud, but with the powers of DC's Shadow Lass. In a post-crisis revision of his origin story, it was revealed that Robbie determined that his H-Dial had inscribed upon it interlock characters from the 30th century language used by the Legion of Superheroes. After weeks of study based on information from a future weapon, once confiscated by Superman that made the news, Robbie was able to figure out the rotary-style dial had ten letters on it that translated as A, 
D-E-H-I-L-N-O-R-V. But he only needed to concern himself with four of them to become a hero. After busting some T-bolts, Robbie bolted to the school bus for a field trip. His friend Joey had a flyer that he tried to hide from the orphan about the father-son Olympic event at Littleville High School. Robbie didn't remember his father at all, and Joey was surprised that he seemingly wasn't even curious about the man. The class arrived at Fort Masterson, the military base that housed the latest technology, a computer ordnance macro accelerator. Unbeknownst to them, the form of the supervillain Dr. Light was lurking outside its gates. In truth, this was Jean Jones, trapped in the body of the Justice League of America's foe. Jean was unaware of the extent of evil Dr. Light was getting up to in his Martian form, but was reluctantly following Batman's plan to smear himself and create resistance to the compromised League. Using Arthur Light's various technological projectors, Jean created a hologram to appear as the Martian Manhunter and attack the base. Moons of Mars. I didn't expect children here. Now I must plan my rampage with extra care. Even more surprising was a figure amongst the school kids. What? It can't be. I know that boy. That's Robbie Reed. I recognize him, though it's been years. I haven't seen him since, since the funeral. More than a decade earlier, Jack Reed had served on the Middleton Police Department before he and his wife were murdered by gangsters. Robbie's grandfather soon after moved to Littleville, where Robbie eventually found the H-Dial he now used to become the Pyronic Man to defend the base. Despite no longer physically being a Martian, Jean Jones reacted poorly to a flaming cage. Recovering, the Manhunter created holograms of Superman, The Flash, and Green Lantern, to distract the Pyronic Man and the military forces. Robbie decided to dial up another hero, something he could not do immediately in his earlier appearances in the 1960s House of Mystery comics. Then he was oddly surprised to become a giant, even though his very first H-Dial transformation was into Giant Boy. Unable to function safely in his unnamed giant form, another break from the old strips, Robbie quickly cycled through a quadruplet identity, also a name, before settling on an old form, Radar Sonar Man. Eventually, this form managed to destroy Dr. Light's equipment, forcing Jean slash Arthur to discreetly strip off his villain costume to escape in plain clothes. In the aftermath of the assault on the base, no one seemed to notice him simply walk away. The Manhunter had accomplished his goal, and the military sent out an alert that the Justice League had gone rogue. Jean remained proud of the son of Jack Reed, but wondered what motivated him to superheroism. In an epilogue, we learn that Gramps Reed refused to ever speak of the man whose crusading had cost the life of his unnamed, fridged, daughter, encouraging his grandson to focus on the present and his scientific pursuits. Miss Millie felt that Robbie's constant disappearances of late were related to a quest to understand his father, and Scrabble tiles resting on a table in Robbie's lab shack were shown to spell out D-A-D. The One Man Justice League was by Mark Wade and Barry Kitson. By the time this comic came out, I was 20 issues into the Ostrander Mandrake run on the only Martian Manhunter ongoing series and painfully disappointed. While the eponymous book had its moments, it came up short for what I wanted from either a Manhunter series or a book by the creative team of my well-loved Grimjack. On the DC message boards, I was part of a group of dissidents who referred to the book as Spectre Light. Given how well represented Jean Jones had been under Wade and Kitson in JLA Year One, I had high hopes that they could offer some relief. Instead, I got a Robbie Reed feature with an extra little Martian Manhunter side trip, just like I had been getting from the House of Mystery issues I'd begun scavenging for. I was not impressed and consigned the book to my back issue bins for 18 years. In revisiting the story, especially after reading more of the original Dial H for Hero strips than I'd ever bothered with before this episode, I found more to appreciate. 
for starters, I know I did more research for this show than Wade did writing the book because he screws up a bunch of basics established in the old strip. Regardless, I always wanted to see more interplay between John Jones and the books that featured him like Detective Comics and House of Mystery and even its unrelated sister title, House of Secrets. Martian Manhunter only met Batman in one panel of one issue out of a hundred Detective Comics together. As much as I begrudge Robbie Reed for pushing John Jones off the covers of House of Mystery and relegating him to a backup strip, it's not like that worked out for Robbie. Reed never appeared in another title during his initial run, where John was having co-starring team-ups and a foundational birth in the JLA. Robbie barely made any appearances after his HOM run, and was often portrayed in an unkind light. John Jones went on to become the rock of the JLA, and made more appearances in the year 2000 alone than Robbie has in the 50 years since his original strip ended. Pitting these guys against each other is not a worthy grudge. Further, given his relative visibility, and there being the only major properties based in Colorado, I figure this story allows Middletown to annex Littleville as part of the Manhunter from Mars' sphere. Why wouldn't Thunderbolt be a progenitor or offshoot or rival of Vulture? If John Jones and Jack Reed worked together before Robbie was born, and few of the villains rampaging in Zenith City were treated as originating there, it would make sense for a lot of those guys to have passed through the Manhunter's beat first. If I look at Dial H for Hero as an extension of my favorite Martian, instead of a squatter in his domicile, it expands the Manhunter's library and scope. And while these Robbie Reed adventures aren't necessarily my cup of tea, they're nowhere near as dire as I expected them to be going in. So hey, I'm here for the reunification of the co-features of 1960's House of Mystery. Now let them team up with Prince Raman to beat Eclipso. He has been challenged to read all the comics he has collected. This podcast will summarize, review, and reminisce about a single comic book issue and the time period somewhat chronologically by release date. He keeps a stack of comics near his bedside for when the time is right. Who is this interesting comic fan and what is the podcast? Hello, my name is Pat. I don't normally do podcasts about the comic books I read, but when I do, I podcast about them on The Longbox Crusade. Listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or on theLongboxCrusade.com, and check out the Facebook page. Read them all, my friends. In previous years of JL May, I've always intended to come back and wrap up the Martian Manhunter side of these events, but so far I never have. I feel like this year will be different, because I've already written more script for this event than I've had time to record before my turn has come due. I feel like I need to go through the second half of the Dial H run, and this event isn't remotely done with Robbie or John. So the next episode of this podcast will wrap up that coverage, whether it makes it out during JL May 2018 or not. I'm also motivated by reading the other books to finally do some podcast coverage of Donna Troy for the Diana Prince Wonder Woman show, and I'm even working on the first Power of the Atom blog post to see the light of day in years. Even if it's not as soon as I'd like, keep an eye out for those efforts. And now, the Martian Mail. Your ego betrays you. Will you not listen to reason? This won't end well for you. The maniacs from Mars across the robot brain of social media include Derek William Crabb, Keechee Baker, Ruth Sutherland, the Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, and for the non-discerning reader on Facebook. On Twitter, we have Osito Pintor V, The First Bat, The One Eighth Sage, Alan Middleton, Dr. Ange, Ascani's Son, Attack the Screen, Batted Shapirak, between the Pages, Bill Bear, Black Jotero's Revenge, Brian Mulvey, Buddy Wuddy, Chris Flagg, who listed us as a follow for Podcast Day, Chris at Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Sheehan, Coffee and Comics Blog and Podcast, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Dan at David Bilbert, Daniel Navas Sunde, Daniel R. Budnick, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Davey Gould, David Galayer, David Golding, DCU Movie Page, Dr. G Nerdologist, Douglas at Pizza Spirit, Earth 2 Chris, Ed Moore at any Comics fan, Miskatonic, Teal Productions, and Urban Fantasist, Firestorm fan, FKA Jason, Gore 
Bird Tolton. Paul Hicks wrote of the Scary Monsters episode. Finally, Frank covers this book I don't remember coming out. It's Plastic Man. Jacob Edwards. Jeffrey Brown. Jerry Whitworth. Joseph Crawford. Justice First Dawn. K. Keith G. Baker. King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast. Cord Industries. Larry W. Looper Jr. Lava Hog. Laurel at Mountain Flower One. Longbox Crusade. Lovosphere. Luke Dobb. Mark Danvers. Matches Baloney. Max Romero. Mike Garvey. Nerdvik Strangers. Odell Abner Dracula. Pietro Blacksmoth. Celadon's Penultimate. Randy Caldwell. Richard Field. Ryan C. A Trash Film Guru. Ryan Daly. Sakura Fields. Scott Bachman. Shazam Cast. Silver and Gold Podcast. Who included us among the Follow Friday All-Stars. Siskoid. Son of Cthulhu. Steven Simmons. Terrence Castingway, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Waiting for Doom Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol Destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol Volume 2. Berg Lytle. 1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993. Pollack. Issue 64. 2001. Doom Patrol Volume 3. Arcudi Hewitt. 2004. Doom Patrol Volume 4. Burn. Shush. 2009. Doom Patrol Volume 5. Giffen Clark. 2012. 2013. 2014. 2015. 2016. Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. Because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. Podcast listeners should feel free to leave a comment on one of our blogs, either the Umbrella Rolled Spine Podcasts or the specific Idle Head of Diablo blog. Both are available quite easily through Google searches. You can also shoot me a tweet at Commander Blanks. That's B-L-A-N-X. Thank you for listening. Read the books, listen to the podcast too. Read the books, listen to the podcast too. Read the books, let them know it's JLMA. Read the books. Listen to the podcast to read the books. Let them know it's JL May.